They might be giants have been on the road for too long. Too long. And they might be giants aren't even sorry. Not even sorry. And audiences like the shows too much. Too much. And now they might be giants are playing their breakthrough album Flood. All of it. And they still have time for other songs. They're fooling around. Who can stop They Might Be Giants and their liberal rock agenda? Who? No one. Decide to pay for it with somebody else's money. Thanks to Grove for supporting Muller, she wrote. Grove makes healthier home products accessible and affordable. Over half a million families shop Grove.co for non-toxic dish soap, plant-based skincare, and tree-free bath tissue. For a limited time, our listeners can go to grove.co slash ag, and you will get a free five-piece cleaning set from Mrs. Myers and Grove. That's a $30 value. And thanks to Policy Genius for supporting Muller, she wrote. Policy Genius is the easiest way to shop for life insurance online. In just two minutes, you can compare quotes from top insurers to find your best price at policygenius.com. Hey, all. This is Glenn Kirshner, and you're listening to Muller, she wrote. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That, that's what he said. I, I, that's what I said. That's obviously what the, the, our position is. I'm not aware of uh, any of those activities. I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I did have, not have communications with the Russians. What do I have to get involved with Putin for? I have nothing to do with Putin. I've never spoken to him. I don't know anything about him other than he will respect me. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. So, it is political. You're a communist. No, Mr. Green. Communism is just a red herring. Like all members of the oldest profession, I'm a capitalist. Hello, and welcome to Muller, She Wrote. I'm your host, A.G., and with me, as always, are Jaleesa Johnson. Hello. And Jordan Coburn. Hello. How are you guys? You know, uh, had better days. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I had scripted this uh, 48 hours ago. I started this and I have a how was your weekend? Uh, Cheerful, um, you know, kind of notes in here. And within 48 hours, uh, the whole mood has changed. So I was just wondering how you guys are are feeling and how how you're how you're doing, how you're handling these two. Uh, And then if you count Gilroy three mass shootings, white supremacist acts of terrorism, uh, domestic terrorism uh, in our country. It's, it's, been, it's been a rough few days. Yeah, I was just going to say that um, I noticed one of our listeners tweeting, asking us if we're in a civil war. They're like, is this, you know, is it happening? And I get how some people might think that's extreme, but I wonder, like, what, what would the transition look like if it's not, you know, race-based hatred and people going out and, you know, trying to kill as many people as they can? It just seems like the beginning of something really bad, if not a civil war. It's like- and I think that's how it's being touted on these uh, websites like 8chan and, and stuff like that, is that it's a race war. And a lot of the uh, language that they use in their manifestos, and I do call them manifestos. I know the media's out there like, we're just going to call them essays because we don't want to give it too much importance. But I think that what their beliefs are are important. And I do think that these are manifestos. Uh, and it, it shouldn't be downgraded or downplayed because that because of you know because it's hate it's it's a hate crime. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have to call it for what it is because these are successful manifestos. These shooters are referencing Christchurch's manifesto, mm-hmm. and, and it's and it's like you know maybe you don't want to admit that that's what it is, but it totally is. These things are written for the intention of other people to read them after they do it, and like one of the guy 
I read the his posts uh, on 8chan, the one that did the El Paso shooting, and he wrote on there, here's my you know manifesto, obviously only take this to heart if I'm successful or something. Yeah. And, and it's like, these, first off, I don't understand how 8chan isn't like ground zero for finding these people preemptively. I think it is, but they just can't they can't do it fast enough. Everyone, yeah, they have them on watch list for sure. Yeah, but. well, and they post it like right before they do the event too. But there's lead up to all of that like, in there. Yeah. yeah, these people are members of those websites well before that. Yes, and we do cover these shootings uh, more in uh, the Daily Beans that comes out uh, tomorrow morning tonight for for patrons. So. Um, if you want our coverage on that, that's where you're going to find it. And um, I, but I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention it and to see how you guys were doing over the weekend. I know that I just um, spoke to a lot of friends and talked to loved ones, and I took um, comfort in our communities that we've built um, in in trying to oppose these. But it's 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 not so much about how I'm feeling as as about it as it is about these families and and the victims and and all that so uh our our hearts seriously go out to everybody um that is affected by these and and the whole country is affected by this too and so i i couldn't uh not not acknowledge it so or couldn't anyway i had to acknowledge it and um double negatives withstanding (laughs) so just a couple of housekeeping things before we get into the news here uh on the Mueller side of things we're home for the month um we're not back out on the road until august 30th for san francisco and then september 13th at the triple door in seattle uh, we do have a big show for you this week, including an interview from Seth Abramson. He's here to discuss the House Oversight Report that dropped this week on the Middle East Marshall Plan. And that's a big thing, you guys. It sort of slipped under the radar this week. Uh, we began discussing this way back in Episode 6. Uh, Jaleesa and I had a conversation about it with our guest at that time, which was Zach Miller. Let's listen to that clip. Now, uh, I want to talk a little bit about some of the theories that I've been... M- mulling over. Yeah, let's hear it. Muellering over. It's got some interesting But I wanted to, uh, Jaleesa, I wanted to give you a chance to tell us about who KT McFarlane is. Give us a little background on this lady. Yeah, so uh, KT McFarlane is the, what do you call it, mentee of, uh, oh, what's the guy's first name? Bud, <laughs> Bud McFarlane. Mm-hmm. I, I get their last names confused, but Bud McFarlane is the guy who was at the uh, Mayflower meeting. I don't know if you remember that, but mm-hmm. uh, April this year or last year, there was a meeting where he was there, Kisliak was there, um, and there was this like VIP, I guess, event before the main event that a lot of people were at, like Sessions and, um, oh, I made a list. Sessions, Kushner, all of our usuals, Trump Jr., Manafort. So this event was a big deal, and the way that she got involved is because Bud McFarlane was her mentor, he was kind of orchestrating this meeting and what the intentions were, and then it seems like she was pulled in because they worked so closely, she ended up in the Trump administration kind of to help these plans all come through. So you can help me out with the details, but uh, this ties into the Saudi Arabia nuke deal plans mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then also the Russian sanctions. Yeah, well, Bud McFarlane, wanted needed somebody in the trump white house right uh, because he's a russian oil magnate uh, and he has always been a proponent of the marshall plan which is building nuclear reactors in saudi arabia which you can't do without the help from the russians which you can't do Mm -hmm. if there's sanctions on russia they're all in it together yeah so he um so basically you're right they had a cocktail party there was Mm -hmm. 24 people there um everybody that was at that party either lied about contacts with russia or helped fire comey Mm mm-hmm Everybody. Um, yeah, exactly. And it's a long list, too. 
So this cocktail party, 24 people, Sessions, McFarland, Kushner, Trump, Lewandowski, Donald Trump Jr., Manafort, mm-hmm. Kislyak, and three ambassadors from Singapore, Italy, and Spain. Yeah, you know, who Spain. were involved with that Russian oil deal, yeah. Uh, and, yeah, the, the, the um, Rosneft. Yeah, the Rosneft we're deal. so many foreign words. <laughs> it was a huge, the biggest Russian oil deal in history, mm-hmm. uh, uh, in the history of, of Russian oil. And it was closing, that deal was closing, I believe, um, the week that... Trump had this speech, had this event where he was, it was his first foreign policy speech. Mm -hmm. So that same week, they were pretty much closing the oil deal. And so all these ambassadors, well, all four of them were invited, but no other ambassadors were invited. Mm -mm, You aren't actually supposed to have ambassadors at those events. Right, it's against like international protocol. But Trump's speech that night was about giving Russia a good deal. Uh, and it was actually co-written by a Russian pipeline advocate. Bert something. Interesting, yeah. right? So, so McFarland, who wants to get all this shit done over over there, he he, with the help of this, the, these ambassadors, Russia mm-hmm. and Trump, um, he he wanted he put Kate he helped KT McFarland get the national debt sec exactly uh, yeah. position. So she now works. She worked for Flynn. Mm-hmm. Uh, after Flynn was fired, Trump nominated. Uh, KT McFarland for the ambassador to Singapore. That was one of the ambassadors that was at the Singapore ambassador was at right. the Mayflower so meeting. So you switched them out, yeah. Um, now, the goal was to have Trump give Saudi Arabia nuclear reactor technology. technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we, U.S. needs Russia to build, build them, the reactors. and we have to have sanctions lifted to do it. Oh man! Um, a... McFarland did lobby Trump to drop sanctions um, to allow his nuclear plants to go forward, mm-hmm. and Eric Prince is also an oil man yeah. and a pipeline advocate. And now we can see why the United Arab Emirates set up this meeting between him and the Kremlin and the Seychelles together, yeah. to talk about, I hope trade is easier in a normal mm-hmm. way, which is sanctions. Yep. So uh, there, that report um, that came out this week, it's called Corporate and Foreign Interests Behind the White House Push to Transfer U.S. Nuclear Technology to Saudi Arabia. It's a huge piece of news. Like I said, I think it flew under the radar this week. So we brought Seth Abramson on. His whole book, his second book, because he's got two books, Proof of Collusion and Proof of Conspiracy. His whole second book is about this uh, Red Sea conspiracy or the Grand Bargain, uh, and it talks about the the Middle East Marshall Plan as being one part of a of a larger sort of deal that was made by all these countries who have eventually and inevitably helped Trump win the presidency and interfered in our elections. It's not just Russia, it goes beyond Russia and it just sort of illustrates what a tiny slice of of this whole thing the Mueller investigation was because he was only investigating Russia. He was only looking at criminal conspiracy. He wasn't looking at counterintelligence stuff. He wasn't looking at finances. And a lot of this Middle East Marshall Plan has to do with personal finances because so many people stood to gain um, personally from it. Right. And Proof of Conspiracy is his second book, the follow-up. Yes. That's so smart because they were like, collusion's not a crime. And he's like, fine, proof, proof of conspiracy. conspiracy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nice. And it's all there. And the thing about it is people will say Mueller found no conspiracy. Correct. Within with just the Russian hacking and, and dissemination of stolen materials from the DNC, DCCC and Podesta. That's what he was looking at. He wasn't looking at this entire Black Cube, Wikistrat, um, Psy Group, XAML, MBS, MBZ, American Media Inc., uh, Russia, uh, Eric Prince, United Arab, like Nader. He wasn't looking at any of that. That was all the counterintelligence investigation. And there is proof of conspiracy there. We just haven't seen it because the way that the counterintelligence uh, community works is they either assess that it's a counterintelligence threat and what level of a threat it is and w- w- with what confidence they can report it is. They don't charge crimes. 
So that is the difference there. And everything we said in that early episode, uh, Jaleesa, that you and I talked about is in this report. It outlines Bud McFarland and IP3 with the help of KT McFarland and Flynn and how they've been communicating with Saudi Arabia and UAE since 2015 to build these reactors and ignore international and U.S. law, the 123 agreement, as it's known. Um, Tom Barrick was involved. Uh, Jordan, that's your um, fantasy indictment league <laughs> quarterback, I guess. MVP. <laughs> MVP, nice. He hasn't scored once. <laughs> yeah, he's not yet, but he's going to score big. Um, who, and and Barrick is the one who got Manafort the job. And um, all of this is part of the deal to involve Russia by lifting sanctions so that they turn their backs on Iran. And, of course, Israel is involved, too. We saw that little bit in the Mueller report where we found out that they were considering charging Papadopoulos with uh, failure to register as a foreign agent for Israel. Um, and that has to do with this, I'm sure. Uh, and I honestly thought we were kind of crazy when we <laughs> recorded this episode. Like, is this this is a little big conspiracy theory, tinfoil hat <laughs> mm-hmm. time, super space beans. But we weren't. It's all in this report in black and white. I recommend you take some time and read it. Seth Abramson and I will be going over it in more detail in the interview later in the show. So have a listen to episode six, The Marshall Plan. It's from, uh, I think, December of 2017. Uh, Read Elijah Cummings' report and then listen to the interview. It's really important. It also explains Trump's racist attacks this week on Cummings, I think, Uh, why he he was probably knew that report was going to drop. It's an Elijah Cummings joint. And so he got really (laughs) upset. Oh, yeah. Um, In addition to this important interview with Seth, we all have the Fantasy Indictment League this week, of course, Sabotage, and my new favorite segment, Corrections. It's a mistake. It's hard for me to say I'm sorry. Oh, I made a mistake. So in part 11 of the Mueller report, we joked around about the Russian military training cats. Uh, Mo Rex, a uh, listener, wanted us to know our own CIA tried this. Whoa. It was called Operation Acoustic Kitty. <laughs> and it, I thought this was a joke. It, just, it seemed like a... I've seen that before. Like an onion thing. It really? Cost, Acoustic Kitty, yeah. It cost, a, it cost $20 million, and it was a total disaster. They tried to train cats to spy on the Kremlin and Soviet embassies. And it makes me wonder if this is where we got the phrase, it was like herding cats. Hmm. Interesting. You know, that makes a lot of sense that it failed, though, because cats don't do anything you want them to do. They cats do, are assholes. Yeah, they do whatever yeah. they want to do. Like, you have to make them think they want to spy on the Russians. And I say that in the most loving and wonderful way. Oh, I'm a cat way. person, yeah. 100%. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We have That's a podcast. like going to an anarchist and trying to turn them into a spy for your government <laughs> or something. Right? <laughs> it's like starting at the hardest possible end of the spectrum of following orders. <laughs> it's like herding cats. Am I right? Yes. I'll show myself out. Um Correction two, the Sex Pistols album is called Never Mind the Bollocks, not Never Mind the Bullocks. And yes, of course, we were referencing Bullock from the <laughs> from the debates. We know that. We were punning around. Sorry for not clarifying. I'm, <laughs> I'm very familiar with Bollocks versus Bullocks. But, uh, I'm I just, not. What is it? Uh, bollocks one, one, are... What are Bollocks are like balls? Yeah. Nice. Yeah, like a British <laughs> lingo yeah. or something. Bollocks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Cool. And, and I just probably popped really loud in your ear. Sorry, listeners. <laughs> Uh, Tom Barrick's name is pronounced Barrick, like a military Barrick. We were like Barack, Barrick, Barack, no. Uh, (laughs) But it's Barrick, like a military Barrick. I know we'd been trying different ones, but uh, this came in an email from someone who has him as a client. Oh. Yeah. In mm-hmm. what way? I am, can't tell you. Okay. They asked me not to say. I mean, I, I'll sense. tell you later, but cool, they cool. asked me not to say <laughs> on, see. on yeah. the thing. Um, Aaliyah wants us to know, in, our respo- in response to our discussion on stage in Chicago, that cow tipping is a myth. Apparently, it doesn't happen. It doesn't work, and it, it doesn't exist. It's not real. She challenged us to find a video of a successful cow tipping. 
So if you have one, send them to us. Oh, and please don't go out and try to make one. Uh, I do not. I don't want any cows harmed in the making of this podcast. <laughs> I love cows. Uh, but if you have an old video of yeah. cow tipping that was successful, send it to hello at com. Subject, cow tipping. I would love to see if you've successfully tipped a cow. I've only heard of it. It's only ur- like suburban or rural right. myth. Right. It's <laughs> fake moose. <laughs> or it's not even an urban myth. It's yeah. a rural Who's, myth. That was someone from the audience in Chicago, right? Fake uh, yeah. moose. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They were right. Yeah, yeah. Also, if you have any videos of uh, humans just getting charged and flown up in the air because they're pissing off a cow, send those too. Yeah, yeah we'll take it. <laughs> yes. In fact, to balance out the universe. That would be wonderful <laughs> to see. Um, and no bullfighting ones, though. We cow know about justice. that. Cow justice. Cow justice. Mm-hmm. Seriously. I, how are we still having bullfights in this world? It is the dumbest thing, and it's horrible and inhumane. But... If you have an old cow tipping video, <laughs> again, do not create a new one. Uh, I'm not <laughs> condoning that. Yeah, yeah. Um, do not hurt cows. And uh, those are corrections, guys. That's it. Thank you for sending them. If you have any for either of our shows, either Mueller She Wrote or The Daily Beans, or our special coverage of the Mueller Report, you can head to MuellerSheWrote.com, click Contact, and select Corrections. We'll get it right eventually. We have a lot of news to get to this week, so let's jump in with just the facts. <laughs> We got some big Comey news this week. I'll go over that in Hot Notes a bit later. Comey's back in the news. Interesting. Mm. I know. The tall drink of justice. <laughs> Sanctimonious choir boy. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Some tall peop- glass of holy water. Some people think <laughs> Comey's our homie. Some people not so much. Yeah, it's uh, we're pretty split. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's yeah. Yeah, my own wish-washing on that issue is documented by the corner peeling off of the Comey is my homie sticker on my laptop <laughs> where, where I've changed my <laughs> mind and tried to take it sticker. off and I'm like, fuck. This looks way worse. (laughs) This looks way worse than liking Comey. good stickers. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. Forensic News reports this week. That's uh, Scott Stedman's new joint. Forensic News on this story. Uh, Walter Soriano uh, has ties to disgraced former RNC deputy finance chair and Vegas casino mogul Steve Wynn. Soriano is the most uh, mostly faceless intelligence consultant guy, security guy, currently wanted by the Senate. Not like wanted, but has been asked by the Senate uh, Intelligence Committee as part of their ongoing investigation into Russian interference. We reported on the letter the committee sent to Soriano via Politico. They got a hold of the letter a few weeks back, which asked him for communications with Flynn and Manafort, uh, his connection to Oleg Deripaska and any communications with him, and his involvement with Israeli intelligence, including Black Cube, Psy Group, and Wikistrat. It's all kind of part of this you know, Red Sea conspiracy or proof of conspiracy that Seth talks about. Yeah. Side group, as you know, uh, if you're a longtime listener, is the Israeli intelligence group where Joel Zamel works. He was present at the August 3rd Trump Tower meeting with George Nader and Don Jr., among others. Nader, who is now in prison for child sex trafficking, transportation of children for sex and child pornography, was a Trump campaign associate who ended up paying Zamel $2 million after Trump was elected. And I know that we see like that photo that... uh you know, people with red X's or three stars in their handles on Twitter, these uh, weird Q anon Trump supporters, have this picture of Bill Clinton in a pool with a guy with the arrow pointing down, and everyone says it's George Nader. It's not. That guy's name is George Nader, but he's an art financier. He's mm-hmm. not this George Nader. So that's been debunked. You can find it on Snopes if anyone tries to pull that one past you. That's also such an unconvincing piece of media. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, cool. <laughs> I'm going to believe that. Yeah. That's a. Photos are out. <laughs> Photos are so out. They have other other ways of corroborating things. And if you look at it, they don't even look anything alike. So it's just the dumbest thing ever. And and it's easily debunked. It's been debunked for a while. So if you see that, you, you can get it on Snopes. You just Google, like, fake Bill Clinton, George Nader, or something like that. It'll <laughs> pop up. 
Um, so Soriano, this guy, this mysterious guy who we've only just recently seen a picture of for the first time, he's tied to all these groups. And in the new reporting, we now have testimony from an online gambling CEO that says Soriano, uh, who she, this CEO paid over $30 million to help her with a DOJ investigation into her company. Ha- uh, he has close ties to Steve Wynn. Prior to Wynn and Trump becoming friends, they were bitter business rivals that accused each other of corporate espionage and blackmail. And then magically, in 2016, Wynn began kowtowing to Trump and supporting Trump. Uh, kind of reminds you of uh, uh, who's the uh, Grenda pool boy uh, situation, mm. uh, Fal- Falwell, right? Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, uh, the, the, the magical turnaround when they were like enemies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was selected, Wynn was selected to be the vice chair of the Trump inaugural and then eventually the RNC deputy finance chair, which is a, that's a position you don't want because you either are... <laughs> a rapist, a woman beater, a child pornographer, or Michael Cohen. Uh, and uh, <laughs> so he, like Elliot Broidy and Michael Cohen, left his position as deputy finance chair amidst scandals. Um, for him, it was uh, sexually assaulting and harassing women. But we'll stay on this story. Uh, we don't know m- much else about it right now, but they are connected. So we'll see how we'll see how that goes. Gross. Well, they both weren't wrong in their accusations against each other. Nope. <laughs> They're both assholes. Yeah. It's one of, like when you see two jerks fighting, you're like, okay, mm-hmm. <laughs> get it. Yeah, and they're like, wait a second, we're both going to go down. We <laughs> should just pair up and put it under the rug. Yeah, I already blackmailed him. Mm-hmm. Made him be RNC finance chair and, and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, we also have this week more news on the NRA death rattle from Jordan. That's going to come up in Hot Notes, so stick around for that. We have some news from Brittany Kaiser, uh, and uh, Jaleesa is going to cover that. And that's your that's your uh, MVP for oh, definitely. Fantasy Indictment League for the last couple yeah. of months. Uh, here we go. Both sides in the Rick Gates case, the defense and the prosecution, filed a joint notice with the federal court Thursday signaling that they're ready for sentencing after his extensive cooperation with the government and the Mueller investigation and beyond. Both sides agree they can begin the pre-sentencing process as Gates prepares to testify in the Roger Stone trial beginning in November and the Greg Craig trial. He's also expected to be a witness in New York State's case against Manafort, which makes sense because he was a uh, witness against Manafort in the federal case. And that case is for real estate and tax fraud. Those are not pardonable crimes, by the way. The defense uh, has asked Judge Jackson, um, if you're nasty, to commission a report from the probation office by November 15th. This is procedural. And that would allow them uh, to start sentencing Gates in the weeks following that. No sentencing date has been set yet, but you know we will be following this for you along with all three trials he's set to testify in. So stick around for Gates. I like the wording in that. They said uh, sentencing and beyond. It's kind of like Buzz Lightyear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. To jail and beyond. Yeah, 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 there yeah. we go. Um, this week, we got a direct link between Mitch McConnell and the Kentucky Aluminum Mill, funded by Oleg Deripaska. Until now, we'd only been speculating. We only had feelings about it. But according to a new lobbying disclosure, we now know that two former McConnell staffers lobbied Congress and the Treasury for the new plant. This comes as uh, congressional Democrats are pushing the White House to review Rusal's $200 million investment in the project, though I'm certain the White House will do nothing. Uh, We've been on this story since the Senate voted to lift sanctions, actually before this, but the Senate voted to lift sanctions on Deripaska's Roussel when the Treasury worked to get him to to sell off shares so that he would be allowed uh, to, for Roussel would be allowed to do business in the United Mm -hmm. States. Uh, Deripaska is still under sanctions, but we know this, Deripaska did sell enough of his shares to go below that, I think, 46% mark, but he sold his shares to the Kremlin and family members. And while on paper he doesn't own controlling interest in Denver Carrington, uh, he, he still is in charge of Rusal. 
Sorry, that wasn't, that was from Dynasty. Uh, and now we have a direct link between McConnell and the lobbying for the project. Uh, this helped McConnell earn the title Moscow Mitch, which was trending on social media this week. That and his $2.5 in donations he accepted from Len Blavatnik during the 2016 election and his vote in the Senate to lift sanctions on Oleg Deripaska, the oligarch that accepted polling data from Manafort and Gates. Uh, hopefully Congress will investigate further. We'll keep you posted. Additionally, Brady Industries, the developer for the plant in Kentucky, has hired a PR firm with ties to Senator McConnell to give the project a public relations boost as we continue to probe and ask questions about the oranges of the deal. The firm is called Run Switch PR, and it was founded by Scott Jennings, a former McConnell aide, and he's a CNN pundit, uh, who ran a super PAC called Kentuckians for Strong Leadership that was a McConnell super PAC. So, mm. um, If my memory is correct, Rusalt has more of a share in that whole project than the American-based company does. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they're, it's a $1.7 billion project. They're investing $200 million. Uh, but I think that, uh, like, I think there's a share, um, you know, we're only going to invest this little bit, but we want shares as well. Yeah, I can fact check myself, but I, I did that hot note way back when that story first dropped. And I'm pretty sure one of the revelatory things about that was that the American company isn't even getting that much out of it. I know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it's mostly a... I don't know personally how McConnell is going to benefit from this, but there has to be a way other than just to, to get reelected for creating jobs in Kentucky. Right. I mean, I think that's what Republicans are going to run on super, super hard for the next as long as the jobs no the jobs numbers are still doing well. That's so, all they've got. Yeah. Right. That's but in reality, he's likely compromised. Right. Is that what you're betting on? I he, think so. Even on being even just his two point five million from Blavatnik. Yeah. Yeah. I think he doesn't even need to be compromised. He's obsessed with winning and he's obsessed with money. So that's what Russia embodies. I think unfortunately. that's probably what led to him being compromised. Yeah. That actually, totally yeah, right. that, yeah. that's a definition of compromise. I think yeah, like just this leverage, this money greed yeah. leverage. That's what the Russians do. They find greedy, stupid people. Totally. A wave shit in front of their faces, get it, and then tell them to go fuck themselves. As we know, that's their MO. Uh, and speaking of Russian-backed senators, Rand Paul was called out this week by Russia as being the point of contact for Trump in the Kremlin. <laughs> as we know, Rand Paul traveled to Russia last 4th of July with seven other Republican lawmakers, I think six senators, six other senators, and one congressional rep, and returned a month later with a personal note from Trump, which Rand asked Trump to write so he'd have an excuse to talk to Putin. High school. Turns out, no, junior high. <laughs> Turns out Putin wasn't available. And he never got his chance. Don't meet your heroes, Rand. Um, in Roger Stonehenge news, the judge in his case, Judge Jackson, uh, she's all over this story, uh, has denied Stone's motion to dismiss his case uh, for all the reasons that he wanted to try to dismiss his case. You know, uh, And she said, you have no one but yourself to blame for where you are right now, for being investigated by the Department of Justice. Nobody but yourself, because he was trying to blame everybody else. Separately, the judge will allow him to see the redacted portions of about 20 pages of the Mueller report. And I was trying to find out where I said that I put beans on that. I said, I bet she's going to let him see a little bit of it. Like, and, and that's true. 20 unredacted pages he can see of the 36 that are about him. So uh, it was proportional. Uh, and I mean, not proportional, but he's allowed to see part of it. So beans came true there. The New York Times reported this week that federal... Public integrity prosecutors in Brooklyn are investigating whether Tom Barrick violated the Foreign Agent Re Foreign Agent Registration Act by lobbying the Trump campaign on behalf of the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia without registering to do so. Apparently, uh, Barrick volunteered for the interview. 
he's been volunteering for a lot of interviews and they're done talking to him. <laughs> uh, and he, he wanted to discuss his push to strike language about Saudi Arabia and the 9-11 connection from the RNC platform, uh, which ultimately happened. So you know how we've been having that discussion about it does your lobbying, is it successful? This is an uh, this is an instant where instance where it was because he was talking to Saudi Arabia UAE Saudi Arabia wanted the language of the RNC platform about connecting 9/11 to Saudi Arabia and an investigation and to get those 9/11 papers Saudi Arabia wanted that out of the RNC platform Barrick um, lobbied for that and it was removed mm -hmm. so along with Barrick's coordination with Al Malik and Michael Flynn to shape Trump's Mideast policy with regard to the Middle East Marshall Plan uh, which is ongoing and I mean it hasn't been successful yet but it's They've successfully done a lot. They've taken a lot of steps to get there. It just hasn't come to fruition yet. Talk I mean, about thinking, sorry, thinking that we were uh, crazy back then when it sounded like a conspiracy theory. I was in Canada back in June, I think it was, and I was picking up my little sister from school, and there was a guy in the car with me in the taxi, and he asked what I do, and I told him about the podcast and everything, and he seemed like a sympathizer with us, and... I like I was explaining the Marshall Plan to him, and I felt like an insane person, and he was looking at me like I was an insane person. And now when this news came out, I was like, God, I hope that guy is just sitting there thinking, okay, so she wasn't freaking crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Because, Which part do you think freaked him out? Um, I think that it's a bit of like throwing a pebble across the room kind of thing to bring into the picture when we're talking about... Russia specifically and all of the other slew of crimes that yeah. look like they happened and that it's yeah. like oh and on top of that they're also trying to recolonize the Middle East through <laughs> back deal nuclear reactor deals it's totally. like okay it's like I want to put on my fedora and be like <laughs> you know why they want to lift sanctions in Russia so they can supply the gas and oil pipeline to build nuclear reactors in the Middle East so that America can recolonize it in effect for tearing up the Iran nuclear deal high yeah. five yeah oh and also Israel <laughs> yeah exactly yeah it does sound a bit extreme but yeah the the connections are there so that is validating yeah, yeah and yeah. if you think about the two things that michael flynn did um that he lied about uh, during the transition period was one to lobby the un to vote against the resolution against israel occupying the west bank they lobbied for that pro-israel mm -hmm. lobby before trump was even president and then of course the conversations with kislyak to not uh retaliate to the sanctions because sanctions were going to go away mm -hmm. and so when you think it Seth and I talk about this at great length um, later in the interview, but when you think about every single thing, if you look through the lens of this grand bargain um, with all these countries, uh, it all make every single thing they've done makes total sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, finally, remember you guys when the DNC sued Julian Assange and WikiLeaks for their role in the 2016 Russian election interference? Mm -hmm. Well, that suit was dismissed this week. Uh, on First Amendment grounds. And we've had these discussions before us, but particularly when Assange was brought up, I think, on 17 counts of espionage for obtaining and disseminating uh, stolen information in the 2010 Chelsea Manning case. And everyone was like, good, extradite him and put him away for life. And, I, and we're like, no, <laughs> because it shouldn't be against the law to obtain and disseminate stolen information. Uh, legitimate media, media organizations do it all the time. There's nothing in the law that delineates what a legitimate media news source is and without that you could curb the first amendment uh, rights of journalists um, so for example uh, when the pentagon papers were stolen by that employee for the rand corporation that employee was stole the documents that's the crime that guy goes to jail but when the new york times and the washington post got a hold of it uh, of the papers from that guy and disseminated it that is not a crime that is public reporting so to 
that is why this lawsuit was dismissed. They said, we don't want to infringe on uh, First Amendment rights. We don't even want to go there. And we're not going to. So a lot of people were like, damn it. I, I wanted the DNC to be able to successfully sue Julian Assange and WikiLeaks for interfering in our 2016 election. But I, I agree with this ruling because unless you can prove Julian Assange and WikiLeaks stole the documents, they didn't commit a crime, at least not yet in this country. And I'm still worried about those espionage charges against Assange. Right. So they should have sued Russia or more specifically the, the hackers, Guccifer 2.0? Yeah. But, okay. but they're already... That's a good question. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you could do a civil suit against that. Um, I don't know what you would win or get uh, because <laughs> you teddy can't bear. bring them in. Bragging rights. Yeah. <laughs> It's not worth it. We did it. But they're already indicted. So it's like. Yeah. Uh, All right, guys. uh, We'll be right back real quick. Hey, guys. It's AG. I've been looking for a one-stop shop to find every all-natural, eco-friendly, home, beauty, and personal care product that I like. And now it's here. Grove is a customizable auto-shipment service that makes shopping for healthier home products affordable and easy. Over half a million families shop Grove.co for items like non-toxic dish soap, plant-based skincare, and tree-free bath tissue. Grove takes all the work and research out of having to find the sustainable and healthy, eco-friendly products uh, for you online, and they deliver straight to your door. They save you even more time that way. So right now, you can get an exclusive offer from Grove on Mrs. Meyer's products. Select your favorite spring scent like peony, lilac, or mint, and new customers will get a free cleaning set in these limited edition scents when you place your first order for $20 or more. Pick a scent and get the Mrs. Meyer's hand soap, dish soap, or multi-surface spray. And then they even have Grove collaborative cleaning caddies and walnut scrubber sponges. It's really awesome. Everything available at Grove is healthier for you and the planet. They've done the research for you. They've taken the work out of it. I recently got all my eco-friendly 7th generation cleaning products. I've been using them forever. Uh, From Grove, I was amazed by the price and the convenience. And it was an incredible time saver for me. And I know I can trust their sustainability and the quality of the products that they offer at Grove.co. So try Grove now before this exclusive offer runs out. For a limited time, our listeners get a three-piece cleaning set from Mrs. Meyer Spring Scents, a free 60-day VIP membership, and a surprise bonus gift when you sign up and place an order of $20 or more. Check out Grove and our special offer at Grove.co slash AG. That's Grove.co, not .com, slash AG. One more time, Grove.co slash AG. You'll be glad you did. All right, welcome back. Hot notes. Hey guys, welcome back. Uh, It's time for Hot Notes. Jaleesa, you had a story today about your longtime fantasy draft pick, Brittany Kaiser. But first, uh, more infighting as the NRA implodes, and it's nice to watch. Jordan, what's the latest? It is very nice to watch, yes. So back uh, all the way on August 1st, right? That was on Thursday. Three, (laughs) so much news. Uh, Three of the NRA's top board members or I guess just regular board members are all at the top at that point, Uh, they are resigning. And this is just another blow, basically, to the level of distrust that seems to be continuing to breed within the organization. And it mostly falls down to mismanagement of funds. So I'm just like, yes, (laughs) yes, five, (laughs) exactly. the three members that left, just to give them a shout out, uh, Esther Schneider what, what? of Texas. Esther Schneider of Texas, <laughs> yeah. hey. Sean Maloney of what, Ohio. What? Sean Maloney, Ohio. And Timothy Knight of Tennessee. Hey, Timothy Knight of Tennessee. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they uh, decided to leave, and they are being accused uh, from some of the other more Stockholm Syndrome board members nah, of. Na, 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 na. Hey, oh, sorry. That's okay. Uh, they're getting a lot of glamour here. 
Um, they, the, the people that are more NRA believers are saying that these three are leaving after an unsuccessful coup to try, which is something that keeps coming up with all of the dissent that's going on within the NRA. People keep accusing them of coups. It's like, why does everything have to come down to freaking coups and guns, you crazy freaks? Everyone's You're crazy so, free. I know. Uh, but everyone on that board should just be named Felicia. <laughs> so these three people, they're one of the three of the many people that are related to the NRA currently who are giving uh, Wayne LaPierre their CEO shit basically for lavish spending and this is the thing that I think is going to continue to happen because they're just going down and down in the public eye as well like I was talking to my grandpa who is a lifelong NRA member he was CHP for his career he's a Trump supporter and he was like I'm starting to question all of these emails they're sending me because they're sending me shit like the New York New York State is shutting us down. You need to send us more money so we can continue to live on. And my grandpa's like, why don't you just go to Alabama or something? Like, obviously, <laughs> New York is a shitty place for you guys to be. Really? And New York? That's where you picked your headquarters. Yeah. And mm. so, yeah. But, so, but maybe they could have, like, that, that feeling of being under a coup or... You know, maybe it was designed that way so they can always be under attack and need money from their members. Right. And on top of that, there's all these sketchy executives that have that they're truly bipartisan because they're just going to, you know, throw support behind the biggest bidder. So that's a great place for the NRA to be. Sketch executives. Yeah. <laughs> Sketch executives. <laughs> that's amazing. Uh, okay. So what they wrote in a letter to NRA officials that was obtained by the Washington Post uh, was, while our belief in the NRA's mission remains as strong today as ever, our confidence in the NRA's leadership has been shattered. Oh. Crazy to hear that language from people in the NRA because they're, the so, they're so notoriously like rider dies. And, and, and border uh, or board level people too. Definitely. These aren't just like your grandpa, for example. Right. These are, these are rider dies, like you said. Yes. And there are 76 members on the board. So three is not like a huge amount. But Isn't that how many virgins you get in heaven? <laughs> <laughs> is it? I don't know. It's 72. Yeah, I was going to say, I think it's slightly more than. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Such a strange fixation, mm -hmm. the virgin thing. Mm. Spans all cultures. It's, <laughs> yeah, just... it's a hymen coup. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but... <laughs> <laughs> There's a title of the episode. Of hymen coup. That's just a great, that sounds like a, the name of a poem structure. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of beautiful when you think out of context. Yeah. Instead of 757 seven, or yeah. 575, it's like 696. Six. Yeah, yeah. 696. Six. Oh, I'm going to show myself out on that one. That was no, terrible. That was, no, that's great. Uh, so, uh, of course, we've been reporting on the, down, the slow downfall of the NRA for months, uh, really since, honestly, the March for Our Lives movement just made crazy ground i think in the public eye uh but one of the things that we've been reporting on was oliver north the nra president he was ousted right after people again were concerned about his finances and his choice uh his choices and then there's also top lobbyist christopher w cox who resigned i think he, I think he was uh, also uh upset about wayne lapierre's mismanagement of the of the money in the company yes and, so and they accused him of yeah. an unsuccessful coup as well <laughs> that's their favorite thing to do um they, this guy christopher w cox he was one of their like biggest lobbyists we reported on him as well a while ago he resigned uh, after he was accused of allegedly participating in an extortion scheme to push out LaPierre. So, 
they're going down. Good. Yeah, they're it's going down, and it's really good. It is fun to watch. They also are being investigated in New York State, that is true, <laughs> by the district's attorney general and the New York attorney general, and they're asking for their financial records because- Tish James. Yes, mm-hmm. and it's like th- they need to prove that they're a nonprofit, essentially, <laughs> because they just are making way too much money in sketchy ways. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of breadcrumbs there. So sketch. Yes, and they're also being investigated potentially into funneling Russian money to the RN. Uh, the Republican Party through them, right? Yeah. That's still oh, yeah, an investigation yeah. that's, that's going thing. on. Thirty so. million dollars to mm-hmm. the Trump org. Yep. Um, it's a, just a it's a it's a laundromat for Russian money. Mm-hmm. Um, we only took twenty three hundred dollars in in fees from Russians. Yeah. Yeah. Uh huh. But they're so they're gonna they're gonna get really like high amount of pushback from people on the board and people that are just citizens and patrons of their awful lobbying group alike. There's a nonprofit called Save the Second that is now looking to overhaul the NRA and lessen the number of members that are on the board and also impose term limits and set a minimum attendance requirement. So they're trying to like self regulate, which is very interesting. Sounds like a coup. Yeah, <laughs> it's always a coup. Very interesting. Yeah, at this rate, I feel like the NRA is gonna be like a Patreon account or something. <laughs> oh my god, up. wouldn't that be so great? Yeah. GoFundMe. They wouldn't let them on though. Probably. We need a Kickstarter. Yeah. Well, I think what's interesting is there's this combat between people that are like their supporters, which very much responded to Trump's entirely misplaced and disingenuous. I'm for the, you know, anti-wealthy elite cause. You know, so there, there's people that are like that. I'm against that support myself. The NRA. Populists, yeah. right. And yeah. then there's the people that are like, we have all this money and Wayne LaPierre is, is he funds all of their airplanes, all of their like fucking just all these lavish expenses. Right. Yeah. So that's in direct contrast with the base of this group in a lot of ways. It's like. Stop spending all of this money this way. I don't give a fuck if you guys stay in four seasons. I just want to keep my guns. Two you know? sects in the, in the coup. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. We just, you just just keep using war language. because <laughs> I know. They always say Ugh. coup. It's so freaking dramatic. We need a two-state solution for the NRA. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm really interested, too, to see how this uh, negatively impacts our ability to lobby Congress. And, and if that makes any difference uh, in whether or not people will... Uh, uh, change gun laws. I think now, just because of the lobbying success that the constitu- constituents of most of these Republican um, Congress people and lawmakers are, are just so fixated on, don't touch my guns, don't take my guns. Mm-hmm. And, and they create this false choice where it's either we're going to take all your guns away or full free guns and RPGs for everyone mm-hmm. and, it, it, and assault weapons and everyone gets an AK-47 with a toaster when they open a bank account. Like, mm-hmm. we, it doesn't, it's not, that's a false choice and, and, and they need to stop uh, with that bullshit and that is why we have to vote blue because the Republicans will never stop with that false choice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm also waiting for another lobbying branch to come up, too. I think that's inevitable. The NRA has been in power for so long. I think there's going to be more pop-up groups that are going to gain more traction over time. I don't fucking know how long that's going to so take. There's so many more of us, right? Yeah. Like, why aren't... why do, Anyway. Yeah. Well, mm. there's a lot of... I mean, there's Democrats that support the Second Amendment, right? And their option is to basically join the NRA or just not donate money to a cause that they care about because it's never advocated in ways they agree with. Or create our own um, RGO, Responsible Gun Ownership. Instead mm-hmm. of the NRA, we have the RGO, and we make our own organization. <clears throat> we just have to have somebody that's big enough to, to back it and make it huge and nationwide so that we can make our own lobby. Yeah. Um, and this I, is I don't know how to sorry. do that. No, that's I just I like I don't know how to do that. Hey, Tom Steyer. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Can I borrow some money? 
Yeah, a kind of strange unintended consequence I see with that would be Democrats that might be on the fence about getting guns, and then if there's a Democratic gun lobby, then they would be like more comfortable getting them, mm-hmm. maybe. Like, mm-hmm. oh, well, at least... Because part of me being so anti-gun personally is the NRA. Yeah. So that's, yeah, I don't know. Whatever, coup. Would you celebrate <laughs> by getting a gun the day the NRA went down? <laughs> There's yeah. a new group. You can just actually so go be. pew, 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 yeah. and just shoot it into the sky, actually, and then I'll be like, okay, you can have it back. You can actually be in the RGO with Nerf guns and paintball guns. Oh, I love that. That's what I say. I love that. And archery. We'll, we'll bring in the archers. What about yes. laser guns? Right, we have a confetti laser gun. Laser tag? Oh, laser tag, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <Should laughs> more specific. And thinking, like real lasers. Have <laughs> an Atari 5200 with Duck Hunt, that gun, too. Okay. You can be, or that deer hunt one that you see in bars yeah yeah Though i'm any all for gun. this yeah, yeah. Toy, toy guns yeah for sure toy guns you for the race war in That's rgo all you get. i actually <laughs> think toy guns are a bad idea but uh I, you know we just get more members it's yes. a coup it's a coup we need more members true um, yeah and i was just thinking this too the fact that they say coup is so reflective of their grandiose image of themselves as some legitimate like go- governmental entity right. yeah or a bunch of chickens yeah, yeah. Nice. maybe very interesting. We are kings, that and we must be. You know, therefore, whoever comes at us is is part of a coup to overthrow our regime. And mm-hmm. just the language is right. just like, calm down with your. I'm not gonna dick shame. Yeah, instead, <laughs> <laughs> instead of like infighting or or a term that more accurately describes what is going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, there they go, and hopefully down the toilet. Mm-hmm. Um, Good riddance. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> All right, Jaleesa, both you and Jordan were on point this week with your picks for the Fantasy Indictment League. Jordan, you picked Tom Barrick. He's now under federal investigation for possibly violating the Foreign Agents Registration Act. And we'll have more on that in the interview. But Jaleesa, your pick, Brittany Kaiser. She's your number one. She's back in the news. What's (laughs) going on with Brittany? I mean, besides this uh, documentary that just came out. Totally. She came out and did like an interview, right? Yeah, yeah. She she had a busy week. So we learned new details about Brittany Kaiser, the ex-Cambridge Analytica employee who's been on my fantasy indictment list since forever. Um, One of the things that we learned is that Julian Assange was interested in publishing Brittany's entire hard drive on WikiLeaks. And that seems to be her reason for why she was even in contact him, or with him in the first place. Uh, but keep in mind, she met with him while he was already hiding at the Ecuadorian embassy in London. So that's uh-huh. really a sketch. And we also learned that this was left out of Brittany's documentary, The Great Hack. If you haven't seen it already, I highly recommend it. It does a really good job of explaining how data science predicts and influences our political views. It also shows how Brittany laid out all of Facebook's data mining secrets, which led to $5 billion in fines for her Facebook, or for Facebook, her personal Facebook. Another part of the film mentions the Breitbart Doctrine, which is if you want to change society, you first have to break it. And for this reason, a lot of people think that Brittany's assistance with Steve Bannon's culture war. I know. Why? So dramatic. That's their whole deal. Calm down. (laughs) Yeah. She really can't be a martyr with this language. And uh, good call. Yeah. Some say it's just too late. I took a poll on Twitter asking people how they felt about her. And I think at the time of this recording, 29% say they think she's a whistleblower and 79% or something like that. They believe that she's just whistling Dixie. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. just talking out of her ass, basically. Yeah. Oh, math wrong. 23% think she's a whistleblower, 77. That's right. <laughs> and uh, there's a scene in the documentary where she's doing an interview in a pretty much an infinity pool. 
Like she's trying to make herself <laughs> seem like she's relatable, but she's got like sunglasses on. She's like in Thailand. <laughs> well, you guys don't have infinity pools. It's yeah. very strange. She's like I'm you struggling. I can't even afford a fourth wall. You exactly. Don't <laughs> <laughs> you don't even have an infinity pool, bro. Yeah, it's so weird. That's what breaking the fourth wall is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> getting yes. an infinity pool. <laughs> Definitely. And I don't. I don't think. This and then is interviewing yourself. And then looking at the camera. It. Mm. Yeah, it was very dramatic. <laughs> Um, something else I noticed. I don't know if this is like <laughs> body shaming or face shaming. I think it's kind of cute. She looks just like the curly head kid from uh, Stranger Things. Oh, you guys noticed that? Oh, Dustin. Yeah. Yes. Right. That kid's Kinda, adorable. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's it's all. And in that's the not face. shaming. That kid's no, adorable. No, so shit. cute. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but regardless of all of that, this seems like it's bigger than Britney, right? I feel like this is about Steve Bannon and Nick's and Zuckerberg and all of them and it's yeah, the whole Cambridge Analytica totally. and Brad Parscale who is now the chairman of Trump's 2020 campaign and he's yep. got his own new data thing with all the same players and it all just piles into uh, interference uh, from those countries in the grand bargain the Red Sea conspiracy to help Trump stay in office absolutely yeah and four former Camana employees are working on Trump's campaign right now they just have a new name it's called a uh, data uh, Appropriate, which is so yeah. weird because it should be like inappropriate, right? <laughs> like it's just so sketchy. Data inappropriate. Inappropriate. Yeah, I like it. I do too. Yeah, but that's that. Right. Just more sketch. Yeah, definitely sketch. Uh, not naw. <laughs> Super sketch. Yeah. All right. I thanks like for that. Yeah. Oh I, yeah. I was just gonna you. say I really like the. Uh, someone gave us a gift in Chicago of a pack of whether coloring pencils or something like oh, that. Oh, like marker. Yeah, colored yeah, pencils yeah. or like co- colored markers. Pencils. Yeah. yeah, it's called. It's always sketch. They just yeah. added their own little thing to it and then there's a, a white privilege color in there yeah they na- they took a lot of time naming the yeah, colors that was incredible so cool. maga hat red white privilege <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i think of it every time now sketch or not yeah i think of them it's a good it's a good thing to think yeah um, especially with the new jingle mm-hmm. <laughs> that's right yeah we gotta do it oh it's uh do you think they broke the law it's time to play sketch or not it's so perfect and yes i did get that from don't whiz on the electric fence by red and stimpy and yes i do know that he was me too i'm not supporting that oh, shit. Um, i don't know oh any of God, that's that all news so to fast. me <laughs> escalated john crick faluzzi oh, red and stimpy awesome show yeah. i know you can't separate the art from the artist anyway sexual I did, assault sorry all the things we have to do <laughs> to like not get emails it's pretty great yeah, yeah yeah sexual assault is like kevin bacon now there's always six degrees away from it that someone is yep yep totally. yep <laughs> that someone true. is yeah. <laughs> it's true it is and uh we laugh because, six is uh, generous don't want to cry it is yeah, yeah. i could probably it's connect like two, any dude to two no, degrees of sexual assault mm-hmm. uh sorry <laughs> <laughs> and a moment of silence um all right, guys, let's see here. What do we got with Comey as Mahomey? The Department of Justice this week declined to prosecute former FBI Director James Comey over his sharing of two memos he wrote about his interactions with Trump, those contemporaneous notes he took about the loyalty ask and all that shit. Uh, he shared those two two of those memos with a friend who eventually gave them to the press. Richmond, I think his name is. Uh, Trump wanted Comey's leaked memos to be investigated. This is why he was called him a leaker and a liar. And Trump wanted those investigating, saying he mishandled classified information, but the memos were not deemed classified. In fact, it wasn't until after uh, Comey was fired that the FBI upgraded them from routine information to confidential, which is the lowest level of classification in the FBI. Um, and that, again, after, was after the FBI, uh, after the after president fired released. Comey. Yeah. No, well, after, after oh, got it. Uh, Comey was fired. Got it, got it. 
Um, prosecutors quickly determined, quickly determined the case did not warrant charges, um, though it's not clear which memos spurred the inquiry because there were several memos that he took, those contemporaneous notes. And we do know, and we've talked about this since way in the beginning, the Comey Five, the five people, actually, I think it turned out to be six, and then if you add Richmond, that's seven, that he shared these memos with were all driven out of, fired, moved, uh, fucked with, uh, publicly humiliated by Trump and driven out of their jobs in the FBI. Uh, so that, and we called them the Comey Five forever. Um, so it's really important to know how angry Trump was about these contemporaneous notes and how he tried to get them moved up to classified or secret or how they could, you know, damage national security uh, <laughs> after he fired Comey just to keep him from getting out. They've all been published since. We've seen them all. And he talked about him in his book, too, which means he had to get permission from the FBI. But the inspector general of the Department of Justice, Horowitz, and, and I want to be clear here because we've sort of been sort of hazy on the, the structure of the inspector general. I thought Horowitz at the, at, at the DOJ inspector general was in charge of all the other inspectors general, but he's not. Every agency has its own inspector general that is equal to uh, Horowitz. He's just the uh, IG for the Department of Justice. Um, so anyway, the inspector general Horowitz, he's been investigating Comey's handling of the memos, and a report is due out on this by fall, but he did come out, the, the DOG did come out and said they're not going to press charges. Comey told Congress he sought to make his memos public uh, to prompt the appointment of special counsel. He was asked in 2017 about all this, and he testified to it. Um, in response, a Fox News pundit pundit and lawyer Joe DeGeneva has said that this is the right call and proves William Barr is trying to restore fairness to the Department of Justice. Fox News says, get this, this is their spin, quote, the decision not to prosecute Comey over his deliberate leaks to the media is not a sign of weakness or lack of will, but the professionalism and well-reasoned restraint of a President Trump Department of Justice. When actually the federal judge said nothing in the Comey memos is a matter of national security, it shouldn't be considered classified material, and they they said we're not gonna, we, there's nothing here to prosecute. It's not because they're, you know, bending over backwards to be fair to Comey. They would go after him with a pitchfork and hang him in the square, in the town square, if they could. There just wasn't enough evidence, and they. They're just trying to make it seem like we're just going to move forward from this and look how fair it is. Like, yeah, it's fair because he didn't fucking do anything wrong. Um, all, like I said, they've all been published. Comey wrote about them in his book, as I said. Um, and I, I, again, he couldn't have done that without the permission of the FBI. So they weren't classified. It wasn't a matter of national security. It's obvious Trump was pissed that Comey leaked the memos to the press to prompt the appointment of Mueller. Um, and like I said, trying to get the FBI to upgrade him to you know, more secret than they were. Um, and of course, he's attacked Comey several times, calling him a liar and a leaker. It's because of this. It's illegal. We're going to take him down. And he lost. So <laughs> when he tried to get the, the DOJ to prosecute, the, the case was so weak, they had no other choice but to decline to prosecute. There's nothing here. And it even said that they determined, Horowitz determined this early on. There's nothing here. You're absolutely insane. Go shut the fuck up. So deep state, eh. Uh, so Joe DeGeneva, I mentioned him a minute ago. It probably sounds familiar. Uh, DeGeneva is the lawyer that criticized Comey's decision not to prosecute Hillary over her emails. Um, and of course, as he says on Fox News that Barr is fair for not prosecuting Comey, he will not say that Comey was fair for not prosecuting Hillary. Uh, and he was one of the people, along with Rudy Giuliani and a former FBI agent named Kallstrom, who seemed to know about the Hillary emails on the Wiener laptop at the New York FBI field office ahead of time, right? He's like, oh, big surprise coming this week. Dur -dur -dur. And right before Comey reopened that investigation, uh, when he sent that letter to Congress to reopen the Hillary email investigation because of the discovery of the Wiener laptop, 
um, DeGeneva publicly told the Daily Caller that he would represent for free any FBI agent that wanted to testify against Comey. And what that did was it drove the FBI agents away from talking to the FBI about what was happening and started leaking to the Daily Caller. And that could have been what prompted Comey to reopen this case into Hillary's emails from the Wiener laptop to get out ahead of the story, a looming leak from Giuliani to Geneva Prince, uh, Kallstrom, the New York FBI former agents, so he could control the message and try to make it as apolitical as possible because if it leaked from them, it would be totally political and it would make the FBI look really shitty. Um, DeGeneva also announced this past Monday that Barr would be releasing previously classified documents on Wednesday in the Durham investigation. And this is the other investigation into the Trump investigators headed up by Connecticut U.S. Attorney Durham. He was appointed to investigate the oranges of the investigation. That was also, by the way, one of QAnon's false alarms. In case you didn't know, QAnon keeps announcing predictions like like churches announce the end of the world. And they do this like document dumps are coming, declassifications from Barr and the Department of Justice. Obama is going to go to jail. You know, these indictments are coming for the Obama administration and Susan Rice and, and Lynch and Clinton. They're all going to go down and you're going to be sorry. You know, and this is just their whole like what I thought was crazy for, you know, thinking about the Marshall Plan. This is their actual crazy. So. Then they use the fact that these events don't occur as further proof that the deep state is controlling everything. So it's one of those self-fulfilling prophecies, right? And DeGeneva has said the Durham investigation, he came out on a some stupid right-wing talk show and said the Durham investigation is a federal grand jury probe. And which means he's either lying about that or someone is leaking grand jury materials to him either directly or indirectly how do you know i mean mm -hmm. there's never it's not been announced or has it been announced but he talks about he knows what's going on in this grand jury probe you can't it's a grand jury our congress hasn't even gotten the grand jury materials from the Mueller report the Mueller report yet so calm down to geneva um, we had Beans on Comey being exonerated, and he was. So I also put Beans on Horowitz finally releasing his uh, FBI New York field office investigation findings, showing there was no or that there was a conspiracy by Trump supporters to leak the Wiener laptop in the weeks leading up to the election, which is what forced Comey to reopen the investigation that probably cost Hillary the election, uh, along with the Russians <clears throat> and the grand bargain. But this report was due out almost eight months ago. And I don't know why they're keeping it under wraps. Maybe so as not to politicize the investigation, which could taint future prosecutions of Trump's obstruction of justice. I mean, if you think about it, if the inspector general came out and said that Comey was right and he was backed into a corner by Trump supporters like Giuliani, Prince and Kallstrom and DeGeneva to reopen the Hillary investigation a week before the election, that would be astounding news that could taint a jury pool that might have to deliberate, deliberate about whether Trump obstructed justice when he fired Comey. In the first place, if, you know, once Trump leaves office, he can be prosecuted and you don't want to taint that jury pool. It could also send shockwaves through the 65 million people who voted for Hillary by totally delegitimizing the election of Donald Trump. Not that it wasn't already illegitimate before. Um, that's also the reason Mueller wouldn't even accuse Trump of obstruction of justice for fear of tainting future prosecution because he can be charged with obstruction once he leaves office and he doesn't want to taint that jury pool. So if we don't see the IG report on the FBI New York field office soon, 
We likely won't see it until after any future obstruction prosecutions of Trump are off the table, either because he resigned and was pardoned and they're not going to happen or because he was convicted of them. But then again, the Department of Justice may determine that revealing that information to the public would do irreparable harm to our faith in fair elections. It might never come out. Um, So that's my hot note. All right. That's Quite a bit, yeah. It's yeah. a lot. It's a yeah. lot going on. You might need on. to rewind, slow it down, so we sound drunk. <laughs> yeah, some people do that. It makes us sound like this, and <laughs> I was wondering <laughs> if I talk like this, and you speed it up, if I sound normal. So now we'll find out. <laughs> yeah. Are you guys ready for sabotage? Yeah. Oh yes. Yeah. <laughs> you guys, the Manhattan District Attorney Cy Vance seems to be picking up the torch on the investigation into the Trump Organization's handling of the hush money payment scandal that the Southern District of New York mysteriously shuttered right after William Barr was appointed Attorney General. What Asha Rangappa says in the FBI, we call a clue. <laughs> the Weisselberg partial immunity that was granted in the federal case I don't think is applicable here, nor can Trump pardon any crimes charged out of this office, and the Office of Legal Counsel memo prohibiting the indictment of a sitting president doesn't govern the actions of the Manhattan District Attorney. So put some beans on it and think about drafting Weisselberg, Calamari, one of the guys. I know Calamari. He was a tough guy. <laughs> Calamari and shrimp. Yep. And uh, <laughs> any other Trump org execs for your fantasy indictment league, Trump Jr. signed those checks. Mm-hmm. Weisselberg did. Calamari. There were two other executives I can't remember the name of, but might think about putting them in there because Vance is on this now uh, since the SDNY dropped it. I don't know what charges he could bring because you can't bring federal charges uh, again in a, a district or state court like this or you know uh like the manhattan district attorney's office can't bring federal um finance uh, campaign finance charges that you have to do that in a federal court i think but we'll see maybe there's something else maybe it's just falsifying business documents because they said when they signed those checks to repay cohen that they were repaying him for um legal work legal Mm. consulting and not reimbursing him for Mm -hmm. a a campaign finance violation so that just could be uh, there could be a New York state law against falsifying business records like that, signing mm-hmm. checks like that under false pretenses. So look <laughs> for those charges. It'd be funny if they'd be saved by just putting campaign finance violation on the memo. <laughs> like, see, we told you what we're doing. <laughs> right yeah. in the memo. Yeah, check. I was just thinking like, saying like, this is for murder. Yes. Abortion payment. Yeah, it's just right in the check memo. That would be great. All right, you guys ready? Speaking of that, to play the Fantasy Indictment League. Yes. I'm going to be indicted. No, wait, it's going to be a... Indicted! Honey, dick. Indicted! Honey. I'm going to be indicted! Hold it, they can't. It's going to be okay. Just calm down. I can't calm down. I'm going to be indicted. All right, so the order this week, Jaleesa, you get to pick first, then Jordan, and then I'm last. So uh, let's, uh, who's going to take notes on this? I can take notes. Yeah, yeah, I can do it. All right, cool. So I'm going to start with Brittany Kaiser, of course. <laughs> Dink there. Whistling Dixie, not Whistleblower. <laughs> yes. And I'm doing Tom Barrick. Good. Okay. Cool. Then I'm going to do Weisselberg. Nice. I will do um, the NRA. Ooh. Like the organization itself. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, I'm going to do DTJ. Good. Good one. Junior. Yes. I'm going to do the Trump Org. Yes. 
Yes. <laughs> Bring um, it. I'll take Nix, Alexander Nix. Ooh, good one. Who's he? He was the former, I guess, the CEO, CEO of Cambridge Analytica. Yeah, yeah. Um, he was like Britney's boss. Ah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I need to watch that documentary. I still haven't watched it. It's good. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, Trump inaugural. Oh, you took mine. <laughs> I'm going to go with Wayne LaPierre. Oh, I was going to do that. Ah! <laughs> Beat you to it. <laughs> I will pick, uh, no one has Dershowitz yet, right? No. Cool, cool. Gross. Keep That's your underwear one. on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm going to do Soriano. Ah, you picked mine. Aha. Then I'm selecting Pecker. Nice. <laughs> um, Calamari? Yeah, go for yeah, it, man. Yeah. Cool. I knew that guy. Um, <laughs> I'm going to do AMI. Okay, good one. How many more do we have? One more? We have one more, yes. <sighs> Flynn. Ooh, Michael Flynn. Nice. I think they're going to bring him up on Farrah charges. Cross yeah. my fingers. Ooh. That would be yes, awesome. Yes. Um, I will go with, um, oh man, Trump inaugural. Dude. Oh, we got that it. one. Yep, yeah, Trump victory then. Trump nice. victory fund. Yes. That's a super pack, right? Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. And I will do... Drum roll. Um... Igor. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. I forgot about Igor. <laughs> I'll do a rando. Rando, cool, cool. awesome. Igor's rando enough too, but he he should count, right? We've named. I'll him give so you a many. bonus point if you want to tag it to, to be a Russian. Oh, oh, one of the random Igors. There's multiple Igors. A rando is worth <laughs> one, but if you can if you can tag the origin of that yeah. rando, the oranges of the rando, yes. I give you a bonus point. Okay, nice. Russian rando. It's a okay. new category. Mm. <laughs> Unless you just want to do like a straight up rando. No, I'll do. Can I do someone with ties to a country? Maybe not exactly a citizen of that country. Hmm, they're all tied, Because I'm thinking, like, <laughs> Barrick, right, has ties to UAE and Saudi Arabia, for example. So, right. like, Aranda, that has ties to UAE. Or, yeah, maybe, like because, that's like maybe because of their dealings with. Yes. And so what country? UAE. UAE? Yeah. Okay. okay. So, yeah. Aranda with ties to, to the UAE. UAE. Yes. Got it. Wow. Cool. Like a Jeopardy category or something. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Okay, my last one. So you just did a rando with mm-hmm. ties. I'm going to go with Sullivan. Mm. He's a stone associate. I think he's going down, but I could be wrong. Uh, all right, guys, that's how we play the Fantasy Indictment League. We will be right back. Stay tuned. We have an interview with Seth Abramson. It's well worth your time, so hang out. We'll be right back. We all know that sometimes adulting isn't the most fun, and sometimes we either have to do things that we'd rather put off or we have to delegate those tasks to others. So why not delegate shopping for life insurance? Uh, Policy Genius is the easy way to shop for life insurance online. It takes about two minutes. You can answer a few questions and compare quotes from top insurers to find the best plan to fit your needs. And once you apply, the Policy Genius team does all the paperwork and handles all the red tape so that you don't have to. My favorite part is no salespeople pressuring you into things that aren't the right fit. So, you know, just so they can make their quotas. I don't like the pressure of salespeople. You're in control, but they do all the heavy lifting. And they can also help with auto, home, and disability insurance, by the way. I went online to policygenius.com and within two minutes, I had several quotes for life insurance. And then they had this sliding thing I could adjust how much coverage I wanted and instantly see how the rates would change and what they would be from all these different companies. All of that with no spam, no pushy sales pitch, just peace of mind. It's really awesome, less than two minutes. So if you need life insurance, but you just don't want to deal with all the legwork, head to policygenius.com. It's the easy way to compare all the top insurers and find the best value for you in less than two minutes. Policy Genius, delegate what you hate, especially if you hate getting life insurance. 
Joining us today is curatorial journalist and author of Proof of Collusion and his new book, Proof of Conspiracy. Please welcome back Seth Abramson. Seth, thanks for coming back to Mueller, she wrote. Thank you for having me. So uh, this week, a little report came out from the House Oversight Committee on the Middle East Marshall Plan. And I have to say, it's interesting for us when reports like this come out for, for you know, curatorial journalists like you or I, uh, or the Mueller report for that matter, because it kind of puts in writing what we've been talking about for, for us for about two years, for you much longer. Uh, you were on this story really early on, and I don't think we picked it up until the end of 2017 when we started. But can you give us, a, first of all, your, your top line uh, thoughts about the release of this report, and then a little background information going, you know, with, on the Mayflower meeting, uh, who was there and why it was important? Sure. Well, I was very happy to see this new report uh, from the Oversight Committee because it focuses attention on some individuals who have not yet received enough attention, at least in the public eye. You know, people like Thomas Barrick, one of Donald Trump's two best friends, the other being Howard Lorber, who have been under investigation, at least in the case of uh, Thomas Barrick, have been under investigation by the feds for some time, but we haven't heard that much about them in the public. So a report like this focuses some attention on them and on what they were up to, and also some renewed attention on Michael Flynn, which is certainly warranted now that he appears to be making noise about not being happy with the deal that he signed and uh, his new attorney, uh, Dina Powell, causing substantial problems with the cooperation deal that he had such that he didn't even testify in one of the trials he was going to testify in. But one thing I would say, though, about this report is that it really focuses primarily on what happened after Donald Trump um, was inaugurated, which makes a lot of sense because it's the Oversight Committee, and so they're supposed to be looking at what the presidential administration has done. But the story of the report and the events in the report, and frankly, the story of the Mayflower speech really begins not just before 2017, but before 2016, all the way back in 2015. Yeah. And so can you go a little bit into that? Because I know that there was uh, this this report just isn't about Saudi Arabia. It's about Russian sanctions. And now we have emails showing that Flynn was communicating, as you said, as early as 2015 involving Russia and Saudi Arabia. What can you tell us about that and kind of uh, maybe piece together a little timeline for us about those emails in 2015 leading up to the Mayflower meeting? Sure. So the uh, the so-called Mayflower speech happened at the Mayflower Hotel on April 27th, 2016. It was Donald Trump's first big foreign policy speech. And that was kind of the moment when uh, I guess I uh, became most interested in curatorial journalism in a, in a public way and on social media, because looking into that particular speech and the VIP event that preceded it just um, exposed for me, and I think for a lot of people, a number of loose threads, things that just didn't make sense about this big coming out party for Donald Trump in, uh, in terms of being a politician who actually had a foreign policy. And so I have to give full credit to the many media outlets that maybe in far-flung places and maybe without a lot of follow-up were nevertheless exposing some of the elements uh, of this event on April 27th, 2016. And when you started to pull on those loose threads, who attended the VIP event before the speech? Um, why did the speech happen in the first place? Uh, you know, the people who were invited, the ambassadors who were invited to the VIP event, who hosted the event. You started to pull on these loose threads and you discovered an entire story that really was then broken up uh, or broken open in a serious way um, by uh, ProPublica, the, the organization and media outlet that exposed this, quote unquote, Saudi nuclear deal. We've all heard of the Iran nuclear deal that many 
of the Sunni Arab nations uh, in the Middle East were not happy about. But we found out that there was this deal that Michael Flynn was working on in 2015 alongside a company that at the time was called ACU. And so what Michael Flynn, who attends the Mayflower speech in April of 2016, what he spends 2015 doing is visiting four countries, uh, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Israel, and Egypt, that were central to this plan he was working on with ACU to effectively nuclearize the Middle East by bringing nuclear power, more than 30 new nuclear power plants, to countries across the Middle East, and doing so, and this is important, uh, in, in a way that would um, violate what had conventionally been what's called the gold standard or the one, two, three agreement that governed any transition of nuclear technology from the United States to other countries, which is that those countries would agree not to use that nuclear technology to um, build and design nuclear weapons. And so the ACU Flynn plan not only would have brought nuclear power to the Middle East, um, a number of nations in the Middle East, particularly Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and the United Arab Emirates, but it would have led to uh, a nuclear arms race between Iran and those countries that could have gotten extremely dangerous. And frankly, if it still happens, could well be very dangerous for the entire world in the next 10 years. Um, side shoot before we talk about the Flynn emails with uh, Barak and Al-Malik uh, trying to sort of formulate this plan, um, or at least uh, to me, it seemed like they were lobbying uh, Trump to adjust his policy and the RNC um, uh, platform. But what does this sort of have to do with um, that? I mean, when we start bringing in how you have to relieve Russian sanctions to have this plan go forward, and then we take a look at things like the Seychelles meeting with Prince uh, and, and Nader, these are all tied together, aren't they, Seth? They are. And, and one of the thing that's, things that's been frustrating about, um, I mean, I just wrote a, a book on this, essentially on this Middle East deal that Flynn was working on called Proof of Conspiracy. And one of the things that was frustrating in talking on social media about the fact that I was writing this book and giving a sort of preview of some of its major events and characters and topics is that people would immediately say, wow, you know, everyone is now switching from Russia to focus on other things. They're switching from discussing collusion with the Russians over the topic of sanctions to talk about completely different unrelated countries and unrelated events. And in fact, as you just said, that's not at all the case. So, so let me break down in as simple uh, terms as I can the deal that Michael Flynn was working on with ACU in 2015. The idea that Michael Flynn and ACU had was that the U.S., U.S. companies and the U.S. government could work with the Russians to build nuclear reactors across the Middle East, particularly in Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and the United Arab Emirates. And the idea they had is that they could get the uh, U.S. ally, the chief U.S. ally in the Middle East, Israel, to come on board with that plan, even if it meant the possibility of new nuclear powers arising in the Arab world, if the Saudis and the Emiratis promised to help Israel, number one, counter Iran, and number two, uh, get its way in the ongoing Palestinian dispute. Okay. That was what the Israelis felt they would get out of the deal. And and that has a lot to do with uh, one of those two uh, issues that Mueller brought up in his report with Flynn, where they were lobbying the UN Security Council to either delay or lobbying other countries to vote against the resolution banning the uh, West Bank occupations by Israel. Is that also <laughs> part of this? Absolutely. It's a great example of how 
um, this plan that Flynn and ACU created and took around the world pitching to leaders was in fact adopted by the Trump campaign. By the time you get to the presidential transition, you have Donald Trump calling the Egyptian leader, el-Sisi, directly and telling him he needs to withdraw a resolution in the United Nations that the Israelis are strongly against regarding the building of new settlements uh, in Israel. And immediately the Egyptians withdraw it because what you have by December of 2016 is this, as I have termed it, a, a grand bargain or what you might also term, and we can talk about why I call it this, the Red Sea conspiracy. And the Egyptians are, particularly el-Sisi, members of that conspiracy, and they know that the Israelis have to be placated or else this deal can't go forward. But what I also want to mention is you talked about Russian sanctions and how that factors into the Flynn ACU deal that he was working on in 2015. Some people might wonder, well, why would Russia agree to work alongside the U.S. to build nuclear reactors uh, throughout the Middle East? when the relationship between the U.S. and Russia has been not good since the sanctions were imposed following Russia's illegal annexation of Crimea in the spring of 2014. And the answer is exactly what you said. The only way, and Michael Flynn knew this, ACU knew this, the only way Russia would agree to be part of this incredibly lucrative Saudi nuclear deal is if the future U.S. president agreed to drop all sanctions on Russia. And there was only one candidate in 2015 on the Republican side or the Democratic side who was willing to drop all sanctions on Russia. And therefore, there was only one candidate who really could be a partner with these countries and with Michael Flynn and with ACU as of August of 2015, when Michael Flynn and Donald Trump have their first fateful meeting at Trump Tower. Okay, so so both violations of the Logan Act, which weren't obviously uh, prosecuted under uh, the Mueller investigation that, that Flynn committed during the transition, which is the UN Security Council interference votes on Israeli occupation on the West Bank, and the Kislyak calls about sanctions and not responding to sanctions, both of those now make 100% sense in the light of this agreement. That, that's correct. But but here's the even scarier thing, right, is that we talk about the Logan Act uh, and it's, it's a federal crime to violate the Logan Act. And of course, for those listening who don't know, uh, you can't as a private citizen negotiate U.S. foreign policy um, under color of authority, pretending that you have authority to do so when in fact you do not. Um, frankly, if you even implicitly are negotiating in a way that suggests that you have some sort of authority, even if you don't explicitly claim that authority, that's illegal as well. And the reason for that is exactly what happened here. Michael Flynn didn't start violating the Logan Act during the presidential transition in 2016. He started violating the federal Logan Act, committing crimes by wrongly negotiating U.S. policy as soon as he became a national security advisor to Donald Trump in August of 2015. So let me mention something quickly about that meeting. First of all, let's understand that Donald Trump has lied about every part of that August 2015 meeting that he had with Michael Flynn. He first claimed that it never happened and that he didn't meet Michael Flynn until 2016. Then when everyone pushed him on this and said, well, you definitely did meet with him. And Michael Flynn said that you met with him. Trump lied again and said, well, he contacted me and he wanted to meet with me. Michael Flynn has said that that's not true. In fact, the Trump campaign reached out to Michael Flynn for reasons we don't know, but I think we have some indication of, to say Donald Trump really wants to talk to you about your vision for the future of international um, 
geopolitics, I guess, for, for lack of a better term. Once that meeting happens in August of 2015, it was supposed to go for 30 minutes. It went for 90 minutes. And from that point on, Michael Flynn is an advisor to Donald Trump on national security. And it is shortly after that particular meeting. Michael Flynn has already gone to Israel and Egypt prior to August of 2015. That he did in June of 2015. But after that meeting, now that he's advising Donald Trump, he goes to Saudi Arabia in October of 2015, and he goes to Russia in December of 2015. And in both instances, he is representing himself, because he wants to make money off the Saudi nuclear deal, and also ACU. But what he is positing is a new U.S. foreign policy, and he is doing so under the color of being Donald Trump's top national security advisor. So the promise there is implicit, and I'm sure, frankly, in the private conversations, it was explicit, that if you help Donald Trump get elected, you will earn yourself a new U.S. foreign policy that will be lucrative for the Russians because sanctions will be dropped. It will be lucrative for the Israelis because they'll get help in the Palestinian dispute and help countering Iran. It'll be lucrative for the Saudis and the Egyptians and the Emiratis because they'll get nuclear power and ultimately nuclear weapons with which to counter Iran. Everyone's going to benefit. And what is essentially being negotiated is U.S. foreign policy illegally on Donald Trump's behalf in 2015. And here's what I'll sort of leave this little monologue with and say that the countries that end up illegally aiding Donald Trump in securing election in 2016 are all the countries that Michael Flynn visited and all the countries that are part of this grand bargain. Yes. And not to mention everybody at that Mayflower meeting uh, either met with Russians or, or people from those countries were ambassadors to those countries or lied about it. For example, I know we know Jeff Sessions was there and one of the reactors that was going to be kind of the the test reactor for these reactors being built in Saudi Arabia was going to be built in Alabama, his home state. And of course, we know Flynn's deputy secretary, KT McFarland, was uh, pretty much placed there by a guy named Bud McFarlane and uh, and Manafort, right? So, I mean, this is all, it, w once you look at it through the lens of this grand bargain, as you call it, everything and everyone's actions make 100% sense. Because before we were sort of trying to piece it together under the guise of Russian interference only, but not until you bring in this entire grand bargain does it make full-throated sense uh, of why they're all acting this way. Well, that's exactly right. And, and that's the the aspect that was the biggest disappointment in the Mueller report. Uh, because Robert Mueller didn't look at um, collusion with any country other than um, Russia, and because he didn't frankly even look at any collusion, um, or I should say the term that, that he used, conspiracy or coordination, collusion would have been a much broader focus than the one he had. So he had a narrow focus on Russia, a narrow focus on conspiracy and coordination, and he only really looked at whether the Trump campaign had a before-the-fact agreement with Russian military intelligence or the Internet Research Agency, a troll factory uh, sponsored by the Kremlin, prior to the um, hacking campaign by the GRU and the interference campaign in terms of uh, domestic disinformation and psyops by the Internet uh, Research Agency. And he was not able to find beyond a reasonable doubt that there was that sort of conspiracy. Had he just broadened his focus slightly, to think about other crimes that are undergirded by collusive activity and other nations that were involved in what the Trump campaign was up to on national security issues, he would have seen what we can now see. And, and you mentioned the Mayflower uh, speech as being sort of a touchstone moment. It really was. Uh, as soon as Michael Flynn is hired by the Trump campaign 
formally, he had been working with them for months. But as soon as he's hired formally in January of 2016, the Trump campaign starts to build out its national security team, putting Jeff Sessions, who you just mentioned, in charge of that team. And it spends the next 45 days or so putting together that team. Carter Page is the first person brought on even before Jeff Sessions. George Papadopoulos comes on board, J.D. Gordon, other people that we've heard about. That team is the team that ultimately does the negotiating of the grand bargain alongside Paul Manafort. It is also during this period, February and March of 2016, that Paul Manafort gets involved in the campaign. And it's really important for us to understand that that only happens because of Donald Trump's best friend, Thomas Barrick, who has numerous connections to the United Arab Emirates, whose um, leadership is literally thick as thieves with the royal family of Saudi Arabia. And Barrick is the one who gets Manafort his job. Manafort comes on board at the very end of March 2016, when the National Security Committee that um, was initiated after Flynn's hire has its first meeting in Trump International Hotel in DC on March 31st of 2016. And now, by the moment you have the Mayflower speech on April 26th of 2016, you have all the pieces in place. You have Thomas Barrick using his connections to the UAE to get Yusuf Alotaiba, the Emirati ambassador, close to Jared Kushner. You have the Israeli ambassador to the United States, Ron Dermer, who now has become a close advisor to Jared Kushner. You have Dmitry Symes, who is a quote-unquote friend of Vladimir Putin and runs the Center for the National Interest, which hosts the Mayflower speech as a regular advisor to Jared Kushner, and you have Paul Manafort in place as the de facto campaign manager. Yeah, and of course, we have uh, Barrick and Gates running the Trump inaugural, where all sorts of money via just one example, Sam Patton, uh, bringing money in from uh, foreign interests uh, to funneling it, basically using straw donors to the inaugural. And of course, the inaugural made more than twice uh, of uh, the previously largest inaugural under Barack Obama. So that's being investigated now. Uh, and so uh, two other questions. Well, this is, I, I know this is a multi-part question, but do you think all of this information, all this, uh, which I would consider either counterintelligence information or just what wasn't covered by the Mueller report, do you think Sally Yates uh, knew about that when she ran to the White House to advise uh, Trump about Flynn? Uh, and then also, I have to wonder if Judge Sullivan had all this information. So that's a good question. I mean, obviously, neither of us can give an absolute answer to that question. I would say this, though. Um, the, the history of counterintelligence in terms of the FBI's counterintelligence division and, of course, the work done by the CIA, and we saw this going as far back as September 11th of 2001, is that these agencies tend to hold the intelligence that they gather closer to the vest than might be wise for U.S. national security. What you had beginning in 2016, in the summer of 2016, were at least two counterintelligence investigations that were focused not just, and this is important to note, not just on Russia, but they were also focused on George Papadopoulos and his interactions with Israel. So you did, even at that time in the summer of 2016, have some focus being paid to, or focus, uh, attention being focused on not just Russia, but on other countries. Whether or not that information got to the, the acting attorney general in January of 2017, I don't know. I certainly think that she had a very broad understanding and view of what Michael Flynn was up to in terms of the sanctions question with Russia and in terms of his 
um, the presidential transition team's contact with the Israelis once he had his interview with the FBI and revealed some of what's going on. But you, I think, put, put your finger on exactly what the problem is here. Um, the Oversight Committee can look at what happened after the inauguration. You have federal prosecutors um, in the Eastern District of New York and elsewhere who are looking at activities that occurred during the presidential transition. And the question becomes, who is still looking at uh, multinational collusion that occurred between the Trump campaign and several countries prior to Election Day? And the answer there appears to be now that Mueller has closed his investigation, the FBI Counterintelligence Division. They're the ones who have that information. They're the ones who have created presumably a lengthy report or at least a, a running case file on that issue. And so it's incumbent now upon Congress to find the appropriate committee, presumably the Intelligence Committee, to get that report and to get that case file so that we're not just looking at the presidential transition or just looking at what happened after the inauguration, but the full story. Because I know from having been a criminal investigator myself and a criminal defense attorney as well for many years, you can't simply start at the end of a story, um, the, the second to last chapter or the last chapter, and ignore everything that came before and understand what you're looking at. Yeah, and then of course the problem then becomes, as uh, I've, I've heard, uh... James Baker and Andrew McCabe address is that when you have moles in the intelligence committee like Nunes and Ratcliffe, how do you brief them on this without giving all of that information then to one of the targets or at least subjects of the investigation, Donald Trump himself? It's like and, and everyone's just sort of at least there might be an answer that they can't give us. But that's where uh, I start to get freaked out is who do you tell? Yeah, I mean, to, to be honest with you, uh, as I was doing my research for proof of conspiracy, I found myself getting freaked out early uh, and often. And and frankly, as people will know who followed my Twitter feed, uh, I get pretty freaked out starting in 2013 when Donald Trump goes to Moscow for the Miss Universe pageant and he's talking about his presidential ambitions and presidential politics with Kremlin agents there. And he's negotiating a business deal that he ultimately signs a letter of intent for uh, and he negotiates that deal with the help of Kremlin agents. I mean, I'm freaked out at, at that point. But what, what really I think in the story that, that people are, are focused on right now, um, where that really starts to me is that meeting in August of 2015 between Donald Trump and Michael Flynn at Trump Tower that Donald Trump felt he had to lie about and that went three times longer than it was supposed to. And we know that Michael Flynn's entire vision of the future of international geopolitics at that point in time when he goes to that meeting was focused on this Saudi nuclear deal, which he saw as a way to solve all the geopolitical conflict between the US and Russia, solve the Israeli-Palestinian dispute, and solve the Iran problem. So you can imagine, even though we have to regard him by any lights as a, a radical, you can imagine from Michael Flynn's viewpoint that the one thing worth talking about in terms of foreign policy and national security on August, 25th, uh, August of 2015, when he visits with Donald Trump, is this single plan that he and ACU have developed that solved three of the biggest geopolitical problems on earth. Now, the question is, how did it come to pass that Donald Trump is the one who invites Michael Flynn to Trump Tower? Who is telling him, you've got to talk to this guy, he's got some good ideas, such that, by the way, those ideas end up in Donald Trump's public rally speeches in 
the fall of 2015. So clearly he picks up Flynn's idea in August 2015 or shortly thereafter. And I think a, a couple things that are important to note here is, of course, Thomas Barrick is his best friend at that point in August of 2015. We know that Thomas Barrick becomes incredibly involved in the Trump campaign as soon as Trump announces in June of 2015. He basically drops everything at Colony Capital to help Donald Trump become elected. We now know because he thought he would personally be enriched significantly if this sort of a Middle East deal, Middle East Marshall Plan went through. But he had substantial contacts with the Emiratis and through the Emiratis with the Saudis. So he would have been, and we now have seen emails from him in which he, we've even seen editorials from him actually, public editorials, in which he's talking about this grand bargain. So he would have been a possible conduit for Donald Trump to say, look, you should talk to this guy. Um, but you also have to know that Donald Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, is close friends with Benjamin Netanyahu himself, the Israeli prime minister. And Netanyahu wanted this deal. So that's another means by which Donald Trump, who had really put Jared Kushner in front of a lot of his national security um, issues as soon as his campaign started in June 2015, Kushner might have said, Flynn's a good guy to talk to. He just went to Israel. He impressed a lot of people there with his big ideas. And so there's every reason to think that when Trump meets with Flynn in August 2015, it's to discuss this grand bargain and to adopt it as his foreign policy. And in so adopting it, he induced not just the Russians, but the Saudis and the Emiratis and the Israelis to illegally aid his campaign so that he, the one presidential candidate who could make this grand bargain happen, would be elected president of the United States. Yeah. And of course, Russia, who started getting compromise on Trump, who knows how many decades ago, and then the, the meeting in 2013, they also saw an opportunity to get their sanctions dropped, which is Putin's number one goal in life, right, is to is to get these sanctions, these U.S. sanctions dropped, uh, and obviously to repeal the Magnitsky Act. So we have that too. And, and do you think, and this is just an opinion uh, a question here, but do you think maybe Jamal Khashoggi was onto this? Well, I would say this, because I do write a lot about him in proof of conspiracy. I take what happened to him, his kidnapping, his execution, his dismemberment, his incineration. It is a gory and terrifying and horrifying and tragic story. I take that primarily as a sign of how close the Trump administration and the Trump family had become to the autocratic um, cruel and despotic Saudi royal family's leadership and the Saudi royal family itself by the time of the, uh, the fall of uh, 2018, which is when these events happen um, to this Washington Post journalist, Jamal Khashoggi. Um, I don't know whether that's what he was working on. I think his, his editorials for the Washington Post show that he was primarily focused on the slow, perhaps not so slow, descent of Saudi Arabia into the status of being an autocratic state, uh, a police state run by a despot. And I think that was his focus. But, but I will say that he was originally um, forbidden from the practice of journalism in Saudi Arabia because of his criticism of Donald Trump. And the criticism he had of Donald Trump, which implicitly was a criticism of the Saudi royal family and Mohammed bin Salman's um, close relationship and growing relationship with Donald Trump. The criticism he had is this sort of relationship that these two men are developing doesn't make sense with respect to Syria and what they want to do in Syria if you're going to counter Iran. 
And one of the points that I make in Proof of Conspiracy is that the reason uh, Jamal Khashoggi would have had that particular criticism, um, and frankly, that anyone would have had that criticism, is because most people didn't have any information about the grand bargain. And so it looked like the arrangements that Donald Trump had with Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, the, the head of Saudi Arabia, um, the, the leader of the kingdom, it looked like the arrangements they had really wouldn't be a very effective way of building a coalition to counter Iran. What would make it effective is if you knew that as part of a grand bargain, they were going to be dropping sanctions on Russia to get Russia on board with the plan they had for eventually toppling the regime in Tehran. And so I don't know how far Jamal Khashoggi had gotten in breaking down the fact that there was a grand bargain, but his criticism certainly exposed the fact that you had to get more information about what Trump and MBS had agreed to for it to make any sense. And so his work would have opened the door for some really difficult questions being asked. Yeah, and certainly Trump's response to it uh, and his, you know, ignoring of his uh, duties under the Magnitsky Act to uh, come to a conclusion within 120 days of being uh, asked by Congress to do so. He just let that date pass him by. I think that that all speaks to uh, the teamwork that's going on behind the scenes as well. Well, can I make a, a comment actually about uh, Russian sanctions, which we've mentioned a number of times. Um, sometimes people will ask me, what is the association between the grand bargain, what you're talking about now involving these six nations uh, and the Trump family and the Trump campaign? What's the association between that and the Trump Tower Moscow deal that Donald Trump was working on with Andre Rozov and signed a letter of intent uh, in the fall of 2015? And, and the answer is sort of a pretty simple one, actually. Um, Russian intelligence, like many intelligence agencies, uh, builds in redundancies to its intelligence activities. If it wants a particular end, it's going to try to achieve that end, if it can, through multiple people and through multiple means. Because you know that not every pathway you follow down as an intelligence agent is going to work. It's not always going to you know, bring fruit ultimately in the end. So yes, there was an attempt to directly convince Donald Trump to simply drop sanctions on Russia over its annexation of Crimea using business deals. There's no question that that occurred. Simultaneously, there was a more Byzantine and complex, and frankly, you could argue less favorable to Russia, plan that Putin was working on, and that was this grand bargain. But while it might have been less lucrative for Russia because it would drop sanctions, but it would also require them to pull back on their relationship with the Iranians, well, while you might say it was less lucrative, it also had a much higher chance of success because of the fact that it made sense for, in a very public way, everyone who was involved in it. There was even a means under the grand bargain for the Trump administration to say, this benefits America. We can solve the uh, Iranian terror problem, as they would have framed it. We can solve the Israel-Palestine crisis. We can solve our problems and our tensions with the Russian by doing the Russians by doing this. So there was a way to sell it to the American people that didn't exist with the Trump Tower Moscow deal. That was just naked bribery. And it was bribery, and bribery is an impeachable offense, and Donald Trump should be impeached for having been bribed for his foreign policy over Trump Tower Moscow. But Robert Mueller didn't look at that, and I'll put that aside for a moment. Um, but that really wasn't going to fly, that sort of a quid pro quo with the American people. The grand bargain could be dressed up as being in the U.S., uh, in, in America's interest in a way that the Trump Tower Moscow deal couldn't 
and it was essentially a redundancy that the Kremlin had built in to get its way on sanctions. Yeah, like an insurance policy. All right, is there anything else we should be paying attention to uh, before we let you go today? Anything else um, that uh, I, I know I was going to ask you uh, how the August 3rd uh, meeting fits into this? Uh, I know that when we had you on last time during uh, December, during our season finale, you had said probably the most uh, consequential story to break in, in 2018, uh, even though this meeting happened before that, the story broke in 2018, was that August 3rd meeting. And I was wondering if you could maybe just uh, let everybody know how that sort of fits into this grand bargain. Oh, absolutely, because it fits into it in a, a very significant way. And I, I would stand by that earlier statement that the most significant meeting between the Trump campaign and foreign nationals did not occur in early June of 2016. It was on August 3rd of 2016. But one thing I'll just note before I get to August 3rd is uh, a major event that's talked about in the Oversight Committee report is this May 26th energy speech that Donald Trump gives in North Dakota. And prior to that speech, so really in the four weeks between the Mayflower event, where Bud McFarlane, who we should be very clear, Bud McFarlane goes to the Mayflower speech as a VIP on April 26th. He is running IP3, which is the company that ACU morphed into. So Bud McFarlane is really in charge on the business end of this Saudi nuclear deal. He goes to the Mayflower VIP event that all the principals are at, uh, Jared Kushner, Paul Manafort, Michael Flynn on April 26th. Four weeks later, Donald Trump gives a speech in North Dakota on energy on May 26th. And what happens between the Mayflower event and that energy speech on May 26th, 2016, is a lot of conversations between Thomas Barrick and Emirati agents, agents of the Emirati government, about how to ensure that now that Donald Trump is really going to drill down on his energy policy, which of course is what this Saudi nuclear deal is all about, that he delivers a speech that is consistent with what I call the, the Red Sea conspirators, what they want to see happen in terms of the Saudi nuclear deal. And Paul Manafort assures Thomas Barrick that the language that Barrick wants in and that the Emiratis want into that energy speech will get into that speech. And that's what happens. But, you know, I, I just realized um, that I did not yet, before I get to, to August 3rd, I didn't yet talk about why I call this the Red Sea conspiracy and what this book, Proof of Conspiracy, really starts with on page one. And it's an event that many of your listeners will not have heard of because it was only reported as an exclusive by the top Middle East watchdog in the United Kingdom, a media outlet known, uh, which is called uh, the Middle East Eye. And this was a story by David Hurst and Dania Akkad, two top journalists. Uh, David Hurst had previously been an editor with The Guardian. And what they reported uh, over a year ago was that in October or November of 2015, so this is 2015 now, well over a year before the election. There is a meeting on a yacht in the Red Sea where future Trump foreign policy advisor George Nader, who now is in jail as uh, he's previously been convicted of pedophilia. He's now in jail on new charges relating to pedophilia. But he's a Trump campaign advisor. He gathers together the leaders of Egypt, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates on a yacht in the Red Sea in October, November of 2015, and they decide that there is only one presidential candidate who can ensure that what they want to see happen in U.S. foreign policy happens, which by that point is this grand bargain, this Saudi nuclear deal we'll talk, we're talking about. And the one presidential candidate who they decide to assist at this meeting is Donald Trump. 
So as of October, November 2015, you have assent among three of the nations that we've been talking about, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and the United Arab Emirates, to illegally assist Donald Trump in being uh, elected. Fast forward now to August 3rd of 2016, and that's the day on which agents of the Israeli government, the Saudi government, and the Emirati government, including George Nader, who has regularly been making trips to Moscow to the Kremlin, come to Trump Tower and explicitly, this is a report from the New York Times, explicitly offer to the Trump campaign in the person of Donald Trump Jr. at Trump Tower the assistance of the Saudi government, the Israelis, and the Emiratis to ensure that Donald Trump is elected. And according to the New York Times, Donald Trump Jr. responds approvingly. Now, what people may wonder is, okay, the Saudis, the Israelis, and the Emiratis can make this offer in early August of 2016, but what actually happens? And the answer is, we know what happens. The Israeli agent who is at that meeting, his name is Joel Zamel. He's an Israeli business intelligence expert who was introduced to the Trump campaign by a member of Benjamin Netanyahu's office. Joel Zamel later says to George Nader, who's also at that meeting, as well as Stephen Miller and Eric Prince, Zamel says to George Nader after the election, I ran an entire disinformation campaign in the United States, and we know from other reporting that that disinformation campaign was funded by the Saudis and the Emiratis, consistent with the offer they made to Donald Trump Jr. in August of 2016. Moreover, we know that AMI and David Pecker, and people will be stunned that they are part of this story as well, uh, because we know about the hush payments that AMI made to women to ensure that they wouldn't tell their story publicly and that Donald Trump wouldn't lose his opportunity to be elected president. AMI did not feel that it had the money to pay off these women, particularly Karen McDougal, in August of 2016, until suddenly, immediately after the Saudis offered monetary assistance to the Trump campaign, suddenly AMI had enough money to pay these women. Now, you might say there's no connection there between AMI and Saudi Arabia, but in fact, guess who David Pecker was trying to go into business with at that very moment? MBS, the ruler of Saudi Arabia. And so it, we have two clear instances where the Saudis and the Emiratis and frankly, Israeli agents make good on their offer to assist the Trump campaign illegally prior to election day. And we know why they were doing it, because they were part of this grand bargain. And who else was very busy in August of 2016? Paul Manafort, who was meeting privately and secretly with Rick Gates and Konstantin Kalimnik an agent of the GRU. And what was he negotiating? Sanctions, dropping sanctions, another necessary part of the grand bargain. The story is very clear. We know who the nations were that were involved. We know who their agents were. We know what they wanted. We know what they were negotiating. We know how they helped the Trump campaign. We know that that help was illegal. We know that that help had an effect. We know that, that uh, all of these events have been investigated by counterintelligence, and we need now to see that report so that all of this can be revealed to the American people. Yeah, and of course, we also have um, the AMI, uh, Pecker and Howard of, of AMI, putting out that uh, you know new princes and great leadership in the amazing new Saudi Arabia, the great new Middle East, to this whole magazine issue dedicated solely to um, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, MBS and MBZ. And then of course, we have Pecker uh, and AMI breaking their non-prosecution agreement in the hush money payment uh, investigation by trying to blackmail Bezos 
um, regarding some of, you know, that whole situation. So everything like, you know, just like you said, everything that anyone has done that we that we've reported on, you've reported on all makes sense when looked at or filtered through the lens of the, the Red Sea conspiracy and the grand bargain. Well, you know, and you always look for the lies as an investigator or as a prosecutor. You mentioned that glossy, expensive propaganda magazine that uh, David Pecker and AMI published that was solely intended to bolster MBS's reputation in the United States. Every single aspect of the production of that propaganda by Trump's friend David Pecker was lied about by David Pecker and AMI. They lied about every single aspect. Who paid for it? Who looked at it beforehand? Why did it come out? Was it lucrative for them or was it something they did for other consideration that we don't know about? Every aspect was lied about because it clearly, from the outside looking in, an investigator would conclude it was part of a quid pro quo between the Saudis and Trump's friend Pecker and his company AMI. And that quid pro quo didn't just start in 2017 and 2018 when you're seeing these business deals between Pecker and MBS, and you're seeing investment by MBS in places where AMI wants to see it, and you're seeing this glossy propaganda magazine. That quid pro quo began in August of 2016, when the Saudis offered help to the Trump campaign, but everyone knew that that help was not going to be the wiring of money from MBS to the Trump campaign. That's not how this works. What was going to happen, and what did happen, is that the Saudis, the Israelis, and the Emiratis tried to figure out how can we provide value that benefits the Trump campaign indirectly without directly giving money to the Trump campaign? The problem is the moment the Trump campaign has knowledge that this aid is being given on its behalf through in-kind donations, you have a conspiracy to violate election law. Absolutely. And this story is far from over. Uh, everybody check out the House Oversight Report on the Middle East Marshall Plan that's just come out. And pick up your copies of Proof of Collusion and Proof of Conspiracy wherever you get your books. Seth Abramson, thanks so much for coming back on The Mueller She Wrote. Thank you for having me. All right, guys, that's our show. Thanks again to Seth Abramson. What a great interview. Please subscribe to our new show, The Daily Beans, on its own feed by searching for The Daily Beans wherever you get your podcasts. And sign up as a patron and get access to premium content for both shows for the price of one at patreon.com slash wrote. Proceeds pay for our health insurance until we can vote blue and get a free option. So thank you so much for all your support, all the love. Any final thoughts, guys? No, just uh, be safe, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Be safe. Take care of each other. Take care of yourselves. Awesome. I've been AG. I've been Delisa Johnson. I've been Jordan Coburn. And this is Mueller She Wrote. Mueller She Wrote is produced and engineered by AG with editing and logo design by Jaleesa Johnson. Our marketing consultant and social media manager is Sarah Lee Steiner, and our subscriber and communications director is Jordan Coburn. Fact-checking and research by AG, and research assistance by Jaleesa Johnson and Jordan Coburn. Our merchandising managers are Sarah Lee Steiner and Sarah Hirschberger Valencia. Our web design and branding are by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios, and our website is MullerSheWrote.com. Hi, I'm Dan Dunn, host of What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn, the most wildly entertaining adult beverage-themed podcast in the history of the medium. That's right, the boozy best of the best, baby. And we have the cool celebrity promos to prove it. Check this out. 
Hi, I'm Allison Janney, and you're here with me on What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn. And that's my sexy voice. Boom. Boom is right, Academy Award winner Allison Janney. As you can see, celebrities just love this show. How cool is that? Hey, this is Scotty Pippen, and you're listening to The Dan Dunn Show. And, wait, hold on. The name of the show is what? All right, sure. Scotty Pippen momentarily forgot the show's name, but there's a first time for everything. Hey, everyone, this is Scoot McNary. I'm here with Dan Dunn on What Are You Drinking? What's it called again? Fine, twice. But famous people really do love this show. Hi, this is Will Forte, and you're, for some reason, listening to What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn. What do you mean for some reason, Will Forte? What's going on? Hi, this is Kurt Russell. Listen, I escaped from New York, but I couldn't get the hell out of Dan Dunn's happy hour. Please, send help. Send help? Oh, come on, Kurt Russell. Can somebody out there please help me? I'm Dita Von Teese, and you're listening to What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn. Let me try one more time. Come on. Is that right? What we're drinking? It's amazing. It's amazing. Is it right? Ah, that's better. So be like Dita Von Teese, friends, and listen to What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn, available wherever you get your podcasts. M-S-W-Media.